Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovis. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we're going to do a little introductory uh, march into cancer pain. Uh, maybe not introductory. We're actually going to present a case. Um, Dr. Carvelis was just talking to me about a very interesting case that he's seen in uh, the office. And I think we thought that there was a lot of learning points um, as it was a very, um, you know, not I would say not your typical uh, presentation for for most uh, providers, and so I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from this case. Um, so, Dr. K, why don't you start us off by just giving us a little introduction about uh, uh, this patient that presented to you? Yeah, definitely. And uh, this, you know, this specific uh, talk, I think, like Dr. Hobbes brought up, we want to talk a little bit about the different types of cancer-associated pain, but specifically focusing on the treatment. Um, and we're going to talk about the use of exogenous uh, corticosteroids uh, for severe refractory cancer pain, especially bony pain and neuropathic pain. Um, and we will also talk a little bit about uh, neurostimulation. I know that in previous talks we brought up cancer pain. We, we talked about neurostimulation, including peripheral nerve stimulation, DRG, and dorsal column uh, stimulation for cancer-associated pain. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to present a case and then talk through it because like Dr. Hova said, I think there's some good uh, learning points and some, um, some things that are good to kind of critically think about. So this patient, uh, very uh, pleasant guy um, and uh, you know, really uh, struggling when I first uh, had a chance to meet him, but still you know, one of those guys that even though pretty much bed bound because of pain, still you know always a smile on his face and and uh, really striving to be um, happy for his, you know his family and uh, the loved ones around him so he's a 63 year old guy metastatic pro prostate cancer including metastases to the bone uh, including the uh, uh, pelvis and uh, femur which um, we'll talk about in terms of the localization of his pain uh, the, his pr prostate cancer was diagnosed in 2014 and he's currently actively undergoing uh, chemotherapy. His other comorbidities are prediabetes, CKD stage 2, hypertension, um, and he does have a prior history of head and neck cancer, which was treated with chemoradiation in the past. So essentially, his presentation when he came to me was with uh, chronic and significantly worsening severe pain that was uh, worse for the bilateral posterior proximal thigh region, as well as his right uh, lower limb, including uh, all the way down to the um, uh, uh, calf, uh, uh, to leg and, and ankle region. Um, so obviously our differential diagnosis, uh, we were thinking cancer-associated pain, including uh, bony pain due to metastases, as well as neuropathic pain and the setting of uh, uh, potentially chemo-induced neuropathy. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the initial management, you know, we, and, and uh, you know, as Dr. Hovas, Hovas and I were talking about before, um, uh, before initiating this talk, you know, there are the World Health Organization analgesic ladder guidelines and the European Association for Palliative Care guidelines. And, you know, this gentleman uh, pretty much had gone through that. Those are always important to reference when you're thinking about the management of these patients, but this gentleman had pretty much gone through that by the time he got referred uh, to our clinic. Um, and I did, when I first saw him, you know, I did try to uh, optimize the opioid medications and optimize the adjunctive medications, including neuropathic medications. Ultimately, uh, uh, he ended up being on pregabalin uh, at a pretty high dose. And I also started him on topiramate, 
which uh, not the main point of this talk, but there is evidence for topiramate potentially having a positive effect on solid tumors in terms of their progression. Um, so when you have a patient with neuropathic pain and a solid tumor, uh, topiramate's a good consideration um, for obviously primarily treating that pain and neuropathic pain, but potentially having a positive impact on the uh, cancer progression as well. Um, so we had them on pregabalin, topiramate, as well as uh, high doses of opioids. And early on, I could see that, you know what, this patient's having a lot of side effects, very difficult to control pain, even with fairly rapid, you know, initially I was seeing him pretty much once a week through telemedicine uh, because his pain was so severe and difficult to control. So early on, and I think this is an important important point is that when you get the sense that, hey, this patient has advanced cancer, metastatic cancer, the, their pain is difficult to control with an oral regimen, they're having significant side effects, including over sedation, constipation, uh, you want to start thinking about advanced therapies like uh, intrathecal and or uh, neurostim at that point. Yeah. And I just want to interject. I mean, obviously, we're presenting a case. This patient was referred to us as a pain medicine specialist. Um, you know, obviously, you know, all patients that come through, we always talk about all of the different ways that we can uh, treat patients, you know, starting with, you know, you know education and uh, physical modalities, external things, physical therapy, if, if available, bracing when utilized. Um, you know, topical ointments, medications, working our way up through those conservative measures. Um, but obviously, like Dr. Carvelis had mentioned, we're really focusing on some of the more advanced things once we get to medications and them not being as tolerated or not providing enough benefit. Um, and so that's where we start kind of thinking about some of those more advanced modalities. Um, but I just wanted to br brush over it really quickly, reminding people that we still want to make sure that you emphasize going through those early steps because they are important because a lot of those patients don't end up finding their way towards us, right? And so, sorry. Anyways, uh, yes, advanced procedures are definitely something that starts uh, coming to mind. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. And, and to Dr. Hobez's point, even if you you know, are seeing this patient as a consultation and you're starting to think about those advanced therapies, it's, it's good to just quickly review and make sure they've had adequate uh, optimization of those, um, uh, you know, considered more conservative treatments because those can still be utilized along the way and still have, you know, positive impacts for the patient. So just making sure that those things have been uh, fully, uh, you know, um, utilized and, and really uh, trialed for the patient. Um, so uh, ultimately for this patient, like I said, I, I did refer him early on for consultation for intrathecal uh, um, consideration of uh, placement of an intrathecal uh, pain pump uh, as a platform for delivery of medication, um, and he's actually having that, that consultation today. Um, uh, so bottom line is, like I said, it's important to start thinking about those therapies early on so that they're established and you're not at a point where, hey, now things are getting you know out of control and now you're trying to initiate those uh, thought processes and referrals. The other thing that I did recently that actually had a profound positive impact on the patient, and this is one of the things we wanted to emphasize in our talk today, was the use of exogenous uh, corticosteroids um, uh, for the treatment of his pain because ultimately, you know, even though he was on high doses of uh, opioids, so most recently he's on 30 milligrams of Oxycontin uh, Q12 hours, and he's also taking 30 milligrams short-acting oxycodone every four hours as needed, and still having severe pain that ha he has difficulty getting out of bed with, and even with those optimization of adjunctive medications. Um, and so 
uh, one of the additional medications I thought about in him was using exogenous uh, corticosteroids, specifically dexamethasone. Um, and so, like I said, I just wanted to go into that because I think it's a really powerful tool that we may not uh, have as much experience with. So it's always good to review, you know, how to utilize it and things to uh, watch for. So uh, just as a, a quick background, uh, as we've talked about in prior talks, you know, pain is very common in the uh, setting of cancer. Epidemiologic studies would demonstrate that significant pain is in present uh, in present in 70 to 90 percent of patients with advanced disease and we, we've talked about other numbers in the past but bottom line is it's not uncommon with for patients with advanced uh, cancer to have very significant pain that ends up being a major impact on their quality of life um, the uh, uh, in, when we're considering the different uh, corticosteroids available to us one of the ones that comes to mind is dexamethasone. The reason for that um, as, a, as a, a reasonable choice is that it has a relatively high potency, it has a long duration of action, and it has a minimal uh, mineralocorticoid uh, effect, and uh, meaning that in terms of uh, sodium retention, uh, water retention, um, there's going to be a much uh, uh, lower impact of that uh, compared to um, uh, other uh, uh, oral steroids. Um, the starting dose of dexamethasone, so again, the literature is growing here, um, but uh, if you look at expert opinion and the studies that have been done, generally four to eight milligrams is a, a reasonable starting dose. Uh, the way I've done it for this patient uh, fairly successfully, and I think a good approach is if you're dosing it twice a day, do it you know, in the morning with breakfast and then in the uh, in, in, uh, early afternoon because then you avoid that nighttime dose and you potentially minimize that uh, impact on sleep uh, where they're really having difficulty um, with insomnia or falling asleep. Um, some of the uh, other um, uh, steroids that, that can, be, can be considered um, uh, include obviously uh, pr uh, prednisolone, uh, methylprednisolone, um, uh, but like I said, you know, dexamethasone is definitely uh, has some uh, significant benefits to it. There have been, which we won't dive into too much depth, but there have been some head-to-head -head trials uh, comparing uh, dexamethasone to methylprednisolone without showing, you know, huge discrepancies in their uh, efficacy. Um, but just to be aware that uh, there are studies showing that they're effective, and there are some head-to-head -head trials that you can always uh, reference in the literature. So when we think about the mechanism of action of uh, corticosteroids in the setting of cancer pain, you know, the bottom line is that we know that ultimately there's a very strong anti-inflammatory effect as well as uh, modulation of um, uh, injured nerves in terms of those uh, pain signals. Um, so just quickly running through those mechanisms of action. So we obviously have reduction, significant reduction of pro-inflammatory cytokines including but not limited through modulation of phospholipase A2. And as you remember from our NSAIDs lecture, so that's hitting it uh, you know, even a step above where NSAIDs are going to be modulating that inflammatory cascade. Um, inhibition of expression of collagenase, which uh, ends up being a key enzyme involved in uh, tissue de degeneration during inflammation. Um, stimulation uh, of synthesis of lipocortin, which uh, blocks production of uh, uh, eocosinoids, eo, uh, and also modulation of the neuroimmune interactions, um, and also decrease in spontaneous discharge in injured nerves, and modulation of GABA, as well as uh, NMDA receptors. So as you can tell from that list of mechanism actions, like I talked about, um, 
There's uh, largely a anti-inflammatory, anti-nociceptive component to this, um, but also an impact on injured nerves and uh, neuropathic pain uh, as well. So um, one of the huge things to think about when we're utilizing exogenous corticosteroids, because, you know, awesome, for example, in this patient, they went from being largely bedbound and not being able to interact with their family to now being able to walk around the house, make themselves meals, um, uh, getting to chemotherapy, which was a ridiculous ordeal for the patient uh, uh, beforehand. Now, you know, has a smile on his face, like, hey, you know, that was uh, pretty re uh, reasonable and easy for me to do. And this is with titrating him up to, so I started him on two milligrams once in the morning, and like I said, once at lunchtime, and now he's on four milligrams, and that's uh, he's doing really well on that dose. Um, all that being said, now we have to think about, okay, we have this patient on exogenous corticosteroids. Great, uh, they're doing well, but we need to be very cognizant and aware of what that is doing to the body and the, the potential risk associated with that. And that, you know, we had brought up before, uh, the um, the risk of uh, sodium retention, potassium loss, um, obviously with dexamethasone, like I said, so that mineralocorticoid activity is going to be significantly less. So that's less of a concern with dexamethasone, but definitely if you're using other uh, steroids, you want to be thinking about that. And then obviously the big one is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis suppression. Um, obviously that's going to be dose and time dependent. Um, generally what you'll see in the literature is that uh, if you are, have the patient on the exogenous corticosteroids for less than three weeks, it's unlikely that they're going to have clinically significant um, HPA axis uh, uh, suppression, although obviously still important to keep in mind and monitor for. Um, but once you go over that three-week uh, time point, you, um, you're, they are going to be at significant risk for that, for that uh, HPA uh, axis suppression. And so the reason that's so important is because uh, obviously you do not want to stop these uh, uh, corticosteroids suddenly in these patients, and you want to make sure that you're tapering them appropriately. And I'll go over some thought processes. Again, this is a growing, um, I should say, growing body of evidence, uh, but there are some guidelines out there in terms of how to do that uh, taper, which I'll reference uh, so that so that you have that available uh, for consideration. But you know, obviously, the concern of stopping the uh, steroids uh, uh, too quickly or uh, all of a sudden. Um, is that that could lead to uh, adrenal insufficiency, acute adrenal insufficiency, which obviously has the potential for catastrophic complications, including hemodynamic collapse. Um, so those are some of the major things. Obviously, the other things to think about are immunosuppression, uh, and that can manifest in different ways. If you look at the studies, some of the more common reasons for people stopping oral steroids include the development of uh, oral uh, uh, canadiasis, um, um, uh, uh, which obviously is a reflection of that immunosuppression. Hyperglycemia, so you want to be, if you're going to be utilizing the corticosteroids long-term, you want to make sure you, yourself or the primary care doctor, or if they already have diabetes, obviously their endocrinologist, that they're monitoring their blood sugars um, uh, so that they can be uh, managed appropriately. Obviously, there's going to be the risk of psychiatric or sleep disturbances. Long-term, we're thinking about myopathy, osteoporosis, uh, the other thing that I think is really important to consider because it's not uncommon, for example, in this gentleman, he was on an NSAID when he came to me, uh, but I took him off the NSAID when I started the uh, dexamethasone. The reason being is that if you use an NSAID with a steroid, the risk of a significant 
uh, which obviously in these cancer associated uh, can in these cancer patients with how debilitated they often already are um, the risk of a significant GI bleed when you use a steroid with an NSAID is 15 times higher um, uh, than without uh, utilizing these medications and uh, together and so um, obviously a huge significant risk when you're using those concomitantly. So if you are, you want to have a really good reason for using both of them because uh, most likely using the uh, corticosteroid uh, by itself is going to be accomplishing what you want to clinically. Um, so uh, as, as I kind of brought up, just in terms of the evidence, you know, there is evidence including randomized uh, uh, controlled double-blind uh, trials, including crossover trials um, that show that uh, treatment of cancer-associated pain with steroids um, uh, uh, can be uh, effective in terms of uh, improvement in um, pain, function, quality of life. And this is actually really well summarized in terms of all those articles in a systematic review, which we'll include in the show notes, but that was uh, published by Dr. Lepart and his colleagues in 2012, and it was titled, The Role of Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Cancer Patients. So I won't go over each individual study uh, for the sake of time and discussion, but like I said, that systematic review uh, does do a good job of uh, reviewing that. The last thing I wanted to uh, talk about was the taper, because obviously that's a difficult scenario for us to be in, in terms of, okay, you know, how do we approach stopping these medications, um, you know, if we need to stop them because of side effects or if we feel like we've accomplished what we need to from an analgesic perspective. So uh, actually in that same systematic review, there's uh, a table that goes over um, some considerations for the uh, taper. Um, and once you're uh, greater than or equal to 7.5 milligrams of prednisone, which if you think about the uh, equivalency of steroids. So a, a four milligram, which is what I started this patient on, four milligrams of dex dexamethasone is equal to about 27 mg of prednisone. So clearly, even with that low dose of dexamethasone, we're already at a point where um, we would need to um, consider ourselves at the, uh, the highest level for the, this expert opinion uh, taper, which is essentially uh, to reduce rapidly by about 2.5 milligrams every three to four days. And then once you get to a range of about five to 7.5 milligrams of prednisone, then you're reducing by one milligram every two to four weeks. And ultimately you're reducing by one milligram every two to four weeks, uh, again, once you get below five milligrams. So bottom line is it's a, a slow, Purposeful, uh, purposefully slow, uh, ca cautious taper to minimize obviously those complications we talked about, including the HPA axis uh, suppression. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that you know when we're thinking about the steroid, and you know, and, and all treatments, and you know, I know that Dr. Carvelis kind of brought this up earlier. I mean, obviously, you know, utilizing steroid has has its risks associated with it, um, but also, you know, for so many reasons, uh, is is a good option to think about. But it also makes us have to think about, you know, for cancer pain, all of the different ways that things that we're trying to talk about, right? So we had really talked about uh, the nociceptive uh, patterns of solid tumors and, and uh, you know, the bony pain that the patient's experiencing as well as the neuropathic pain, you know, and as we're, as we're thinking about some of these advanced uh, tools that we have, and, and I would consider oral steroids as an advanced tool because it is not an, an everyday thing, right? And, and you brought up 
you know, intrathecal therapy as a way of being able to deliver those opiates um, and other medications likely uh, in, a, in a manner that's going to decrease his risk of side effects or any patient's risk of side effects. Um, but, you know, then the last thing that you alluded to, which I think makes for a nice little transition, uh, is neuromodulation, right? And so, I mean, obviously, you know, we love neuro neuromodulation. I think we've talked about it um, a bit, probably not as much as we should for how much we actually think about it. <laughs> um, but neuromodulation, which tends to be something that is thought about for uh, mostly uh, neuropathic processes, uh, does actually have some pretty interesting literature uh, and at least case series. And, and you know, I've had some experience with utilizing this uh, these tools with some uh, some bony pain as well. Um, and so, you know, I know that, that I think that was the last thing that you wanted to think about is one of those other tools that probably isn't always um, considered uh, when we're talking about cancer pain patients as we're walking through, you know, the, the who ladder and, and trying to get these patients into a better functional state. Um, so did you want to bring up that, uh, that case series um, that we were discussing earlier? Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Hovez and I, when we were thinking about <laughs> the, the evidence in terms of neurostimulation for this, uh, uh, for this process, of course, there are multiple articles out there, but one of the uh, uh, more significant ones um, was an article uh, published by Dr. Uh, Yakovlev, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing the last name correctly, and his colleagues in 2011, uh, which included cancer patients with severe refractory uh, intractable uh, low back pain due to metastases to the spine. Um, and essentially, these patients underwent a trial as well as implant. The leads were placed uh, from T8 to uh, T10 uh, for these patients, because uh, like I said, they predominantly had uh, uh, low back pain. And the, uh, some of the outcome measures included opioid use as well as obviously uh, visual analog scale. And with the opioid use, you know, pre-implant, every single one of these patients, 100% of the patients were on significant doses of opioids. After the implant, they were actually able to get about half of the patients off of opioids. And the 50% and the of patients that did stay on opioids uh, had a decreased uh, a significant decrease in their opioid dose. The uh, mean uh, visual analog scale pre-implant was seven and post-implant was two, and that um, that improvement in pain score was sustained at their 12-month follow-up. So, you know, not a randomized controlled trial like Dr. Hovez brought up, but you know, definitely for these you know difficult to control severe pain processes, um, definitely encouraging evidence that obviously we'll continue to try to build and grow upon. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that the the thing about cancer pain that's different is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it is it is a much different type of pain. I mean, I think everybody who deals with pain, there's cancer pain, there's non-cancer pain, right? I mean, when we're talking about uh, chronic pain, and cancer pain does have these different elements to them, to it that I, I think sometimes are, are forgotten that everybody presumes that the main source of pain is always that, you know, the actual uh, cancer process itself, um, and a lot of times, uh, which I think we have discussed in the past, there you know the, the treatments for the for the cancer, you know the medications, the the chemotherapy, radiation can cause other pathologies that are are there concomitantly for the patient, um, and so as we're trying to address this, obviously not everybody is going to be able to you know, utilize oral medications or adjuvant medications uh, and, you know, different types of less invasive therapies. And so we have these amazing tools, um, you know, three of which I think we, we covered fairly well today in terms of being able to, to offer to patients. Uh, and Dr. Carvelis brought up pretty early, 
the, the earlier that you start putting these as part of the potential plan and the patient understands that, you know, A, there are a lot of tools available to them, but B, you can actually start the process because generally speaking, you know, it does take a little bit of time for some of these more advanced therapies to kind of work their way into the treatment algorithm. And so, you know, taking the steps, utilizing, you know, some of the oral medications, utilizing the steroids like Dr. Carvelis has quite successfully in this case, thankfully, um, but also putting the, a patient uh, such as this in position to, you know, consider an intrathecal pump, um, you know, also have the consideration of neuromodulation if it's, if it's necessary as, you know, he continues on with the, the treatment process or if the, you know, all of those other tools aren't quite enough to sustain his, uh, his quality of life. But we have all of these things available and for patients to know that they're there for them to help, I think is just, you know, in and of itself is helpful for the patient. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. All right, guys, well, um, I appreciate you listening and uh, um, hope you have a good rest of the week and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs> all right, stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center. Mike, check one, two. Uh, I couldn't think of anything to say, but. <laughs> <laughs>